You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We've got a lot coming on today's program. We're going to be talking dairy. Of course, June is World Dairy Month. Ben Lane, analyst, uh, dairy analyst at Terrain, will be joining us in just a moment. Then in segment two, we're going to talk with the American Farmland Trust. We've got some new agrovoltaics bill that have been introduced in Washington, D.C., we're going to see what their thoughts are and how this could impact solar development on agriculture. And then in segment three, Bill Hoagland, uh, Bill Hoagland, rather, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center, will be joining us. We're going to talk through this debt ceiling deal that's being discussed and voted on today in D.C. Before closing today, looking at the grain markets with Chris Robinson of Robinson Ag Marketing. But we're going to kick it off with the dairy market. Ben Lane joins us now. And Ben... Milk prices just continuing to struggle. $15 a hundredweight here in the front month. Where do things go from here? Is the trend up or down in the future? Well, hopefully it's not not anymore down. I am hopeful that we are starting to reach the bottom of, of this uh, decline that we've been on here since the beginning of the year. It's been, it, it's definitely tough conditions right now. It's a lot lower, I think, than a lot of people expected coming into this year. Uh, and it's gone on for longer. So I think it's it's normal that we would see a seasonal drop in the beginning of the year. It's kind of a, a seasonal market where you've you got things like the spring flush and it's not a very strong demand time of year. So it's it's natural to start off with a little bit of a, a lull in prices, but it's gone on for more than I think we had expected, and it's been worse than we had expected. And what are we seeing then from the industry's response? I mean, dairy producers, obviously, they've rolled a lot of capital into these things. They don't like to liquidate those herds until they have to, but then at these price levels, are we seeing that happen? I think we are, yeah. You've got good cull values. The incentive is there that at these levels, it's it's hard to eke out much profitability. I think a lot of people are seeing some some real challenges and when faced with with some pretty favorable call values, I think you're seeing some of the, the herds start to shrink. And I think that's something that we'll start to see. We're seeing higher slaughter rates. So I think we're gonna see a little bit of contraction on the supply side probably. We're really only, at this point, we're barely squeaking ahead of where we were last year. We're seeing pretty minimal gains in milk production on a year over year basis. Uh, we're, we're well below the normal trend line growth. So I think that, that's going to continue, especially in these conditions. It's 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 been a challenge, and it was a challenge that producers could withstand for the first couple of months. We were coming off a pretty good year in 2022, and I, th I think people were ready to, to push through a couple of months with some momentum from a good year in, in the rearview mirror. But uh, when we're not seeing that really improve, that's become more of a challenge, and I think that we are going to see things start to turn around. All right. See things start to turn around. That's good news, Ben. That would be welcome news to a lot of these dairy producers. I, I want to ask you, because the dairy industry is so complex here across this country, geographically, we know the Southwest has been in this three-year La Nina drought. What have we seen develop in the dairy industry there across the Southern Plains? Yeah, it's it's been a pretty regional market recently. And I think we are, even in the last couple of years, we're seeing more dynamics that are driving some of these regional differences, whether it's weather or things like drought and feed costs and where you can grow your own grains versus shipping them. And and, and I think that's driven a lot of, of unique dynamics region to region that you're seeing um, some regions struggle a little more than others. Right now, though, at these prices, it's it's pretty much a challenge across the board. It's hard for anybody to really get too far ahead in, in this type of market. You said it's going to start to change, Ben. When is it going to start to change? Are we going to have to see production continue to drop down? Or is there any sort of seasonal summertime demand the industry watches for this time of year? There is summertime demand. There's always a little bit of change. I mean, you have things like cheeseburger season. You know, once you once you get the grills fired up, you see more cheese going towards cheeseburgers, ice cream. I think you see the cream markets shift from going into putting away butter for the fall and, and shift into putting that into ice cream. So there's there's some dynamics there. At the same time, you do have school milk programs slowing down. So you've got school milk slows down. So it's a little bit of give and take, but it, it does tend to be the beginning of a little more pickup for demand. I think that's, you know, that's one point that I'm optimistic about. 
but uh, you know, it's it's going to be a challenge. I think consumers are still under some pressure. Prices are still up there. Consumers are shifting from um, eating away from home to eating at home. That's always a little bit of a negative for dairy demand. It's a little bit of a challenge there. We consume less dairy when we're preparing our own food at home. So there's a few headwinds there. I do think there's room for for demand improvement. There's still some you know general economic risk there as well, but. Uh, I think more of the catalyst is going to be on the supply side and seeing the supply slow down. But I'm hopeful that, you know, within a couple of months and without too much more pain, I think we can start to see that turn around. All right, Ben, if we can, since we are celebrating Dairy Month here for the next 30 days, pretty dismal situation out there, as you outlined in the immediate near term. But let's look longer term. Dairy demand, changing consumer habits. We've seen the industry adapt in the past. Ben, do you think as we go out longer term, the dairy industry will have to adapt in some ways? Or what do you think is going to be most likely? Well, I think it's it's always adapted and it's always going to continue to have to adapt. We don't want to get too comfortable in assuming ever that this is you know the way things are always going to be. That's always a risk I think dairy's faced. And especially when we think of something like fluid milk, we've seen fluid demand decline for decades. And that's that's been something that's frustrating to the industry. But we have to kind of recognize, all right, let's focus on where where can we meet consumers where they're at and how can we provide products that they're that they're going to like and i think we've done pretty well with that over over the long term we just got to keep keep an eye on it we do continue to demand more dairy overall i mean when you look at cheese and ice cream and butter and all the products and you put that into an equivalent amount of milk we're still growing in milk demand on a per capita basis we're just not drinking it we're we're eating it in the form of cheese or pizza and a lot of different things and we're going to have to continue to do that going forward. We're going to have a very different demographic makeup in the U.S., an aging population. They're going to demand different types of products. So I think we're going to need to start thinking about healthy aging or looking at what what products dairy can supply that's going to serve a need with this aging population and, and make sure that we can continue to evolve with, with the uh, markets that we serve. Globally, you touched on the demand globally, looking at these folks around the world. Uh, we talked with Krista Harton from US DEC yesterday on the program. She's optimistic about the opportunity for dairy exports from a market perspective. Ben, do you feel the same way? Does the does the global demand look good for US dairy? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a huge opportunity, a huge growth area for, for the U.S. For, for several years now. It went from being something that wasn't a major factor and it was kind of, you know, we would take surplus milk and dry it and put it out on the market and see what happens to now it's a much more purposeful uh, outlet for milk. And I think that's that's been a real positive. That's helped us with the ability to grow. I mean, in terms of just the ability to grow the production sector and have an outlet for that milk, we're a pretty mature society here in the U.S. There's, a, you know, we're going to have an aging population, like I said, and growth is going to slow down. So if we, if we're looking for mouths to feed and and consumers and population growth, it's going to be in other parts of the world, and that's that's going to be something that's going to continue to be an outlet for us and, and an opportunity in terms of just sheer volume and and moving product. Um, and we're we're always competing with the EU and New Zealand. There are major competitors there, and I think they're their challenges are getting more severe. New Zealand's basically capped in their ability to grow. They had been a major growth area the past 10 years or so, and that's slowed down dramatically. Um, and the EU's facing some challenges as well. So I think if, if we can continue to serve those markets and look for opportunities, that's going to be a big a big uh, area of growth for us. We'll get some sunshine back in this dairy sector yet. Folks, we've been talking with Ben Lane, dairy analyst with Terrain. And Ben, thanks for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. Folks, stick around when AOA returns. We're going to talk with Samantha Levy of the American Farmland Trust about what to expect from AgriVotePay. Leave it here for AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Please be silent as the runners take their marks. And looks like one plant has already pulled into an early lead because it's been enhanced with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. 
Wait, wait, and the early favorite has crossed the finish line. Get the most out of your fertilizer investment. Don't forget to add Biopath to your early season application. Talk to your retailer about Mosaic Biologicals today or visit cornsprint.com. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today. We're going to turn our focus to farmland, specifically using farmland for generating solar power. Joining us for this discussion is Samantha Levy. She's the Conservation and Climate Policy Manager with American Farmland Trust. And Samantha, thanks for joining us here today. Pleased to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. The reason I wanted to get you on today is because there's been a recent bill introduction in Congress that you guys are in support of. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about agrivoltaics to get things started. Yeah, happy to. So uh, this was a bill introduced by um, Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico and uh, Senator Mike Braun of Indiana, a bipartisan bill, which is very meaningful for the farm bill. And uh, it's, it's to advance agrivoltaics and particularly within the United States Department of Agriculture. The Department of Energy has long been a leader in research on this space. And you know, USDA has invested some and there's just more opportunity for growth there. And to answer your question, agrivoltaics is the pairing of solar energy generation with agricultural production on the same piece of land in an integrated way throughout the life of the solar project. Interesting. So this is something, of course, Samantha, we've heard a lot about over the past several years is this goal to decarbonize the energy system has proceeded. We've seen solar installations be be unveiled across rural America. And from AFT's perspective, what are you watching for as you see these proposals be announced? Such a great question, Mike. The Department of Energy put out a solar future study that basically revealed that to decarbonize by 2050, we need about 10.4 million acres of solar, 90% of which they expect to take place in rural communities. So we expect rural communities, farmland in particular, and farmers to play a great role in this, a big role. Uh, AFT's research shows 83% of that likely on farmland. And so there are opportunities there for landowners to generate some more income on a regular basis. And then there are also threats, especially from really large scale solar, which we're seeing more and more of because 
farmer renters just can't compete with the prices developers can pay and sometimes they can get quite quite sizable and that can impact the community. And, you know, that's a really good point. And Samantha, as, as these topics come up, or at least in my conversations with producers at meetings, as these solar topics come up, you know, the conversation often is, well, you know, we'll see, maybe it won't happen, maybe it won't go, maybe, it, maybe it'll go away. But it sounds like you believe at least that the move towards solar, the use of solar and energy is, is here to stay, and we just need to figure out how best to manage it. Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't think that farmers are wrong in framing things that way because we're seeing immense community pushback as these projects get proposed. But the reality is that it's markets driving this transition. Solar energy has become very cost competitive and uh, the technologies have improved. And um, so yeah, I, I and you know then of course there's policies advancing this across the country. So no, I don't see this going away. But the question of where it may take place that is the one that we're really focusing on here. And that is a huge question. It's a huge question, obviously, for the industry, but it's also huge for agriculture because Sam, as Samantha, as you've noted, a lot of this is expected to take place on farm ground. And why is that? Yeah, it's a great question. So. Uh, expected to take place on farm ground because developers look for flat, sunny, already cleared land near transmission infrastructure, near energy infrastructure that they can plug into to bring that power to the people that need it. And so uh, what, what, what am I describing there? Often describing good farmland and anything, you know, away from that will raise costs for developers. And so, so yeah, there's a major overlap there. There is. And so we've got this resource, this agricultural land being used in production right now. We've got this demand for flat, sunny areas for solar power. And the money behind that solar power is often bigger than the money behind the commodity row crop production. So we see these huge per acre valuations. Samantha, my question is, who's thinking about this from a holistic standpoint? And are there any principles we've got to help protect agriculture? Yes, we do. Who's thinking about it from a holistic perspective? I'd say American Farmland Trust is, or at least we're endeavoring to look at all sides of this, the opportunities and to address the threats so everybody wins. Our principles to, we call it smart solar, kind of building off of the smart growth movement. Our principles are to prioritize siting on the built environment, on marginal land, so away from that really good, productive, prime ground to safeguard the ability to use land for farming in the future. So, you know, not don't don't take the topsoil all off when you're constructing the solar array now. Uh, to expand agrivoltaics. This is an innovation, you know, sort of what sparked this conversation. Uh, this is a new innovation to, to learn how to integrate solar, at least in the US, to learn how to integrate solar and farming together. And, and one that we see an opportunity to determine how that can work across the country. And then finally, to really pay close attention to farm viability and equity as we're uh, transitioning to um, decarbonized energy generation. So we've got these principles that are out there. AFT has promoted these. You've published these. You've been talking about these. But the next step, of course, is getting them enshrined into policy. Samantha, right. what's the policy agenda look like? And is there and is there a piece of legislation that these could be slipped into? Is this something that can be worked into the farm bill? We think so. Uh, you know, one pathway is certainly with this bill that was just introduced by Senators Heinrich and Braun. And we see other opportunities. In fact, AFT just uh, put out our farm bill platform on solar. There are opportunities for the Natural Resources Conservation Service to be promulgating some best practices. How can developers safeguard soil productivity for the future when they're constructing those solar arrays on farmland? Um, and, and other areas of priority like protecting farmland, giving farmers other options, you know, in case they don't want to lease their land to a solar developer. Uh, so the Farm Bill is an important opportunity. It's a bill that will get passed in a bipartisan fashion. We think this is a bipartisan issue. And then there's state level policy and local policy, which we've got folks around the country working on because so many of these decisions are made at the state and local level for where these things will go and how. So the federal government has an opportunity to pro provide good information and support and guidance. And then our state and local governments 
take that into consideration and put it into action. We're here to help folks with that. Samantha, and I'm glad you mentioned that. You mentioned that AFT, you're analyzing all the potential impacts of something like this. It is a big revenue generator, potentially across rural America, even with some concerns. And to that end, we should have started here, but could you tell us about AFT? What is America's Farmland Trust? Yeah, thanks. So American Farmland Trust, we're an organization we've been around since the 1980s. Our mission is save the land that sustains us. Those no farms, no food bumper stickers, that's us. So we know without farms, without farmers, without farmland, we don't have food to sustain us as a society. So, you know, we're we're also really focused on making sure that we're addressing climate change. We know that this is impacting farmers and ranchers across the country with unpredictable temperatures and extreme weather. So in this instance with solar, it's really looking for those opportunities to support farm viability, support farmer renters as well, to strengthen communities and to minimize the, the potential harms that we've been working for decades to protect, keep land and farming, keep farmers on the land, help farmers adopt sound farming practices. All right, Samantha. So now let's loop it back to this agrivoltaics bill. Explain if you can how agrivoltaics is different than large scale solar expansion. What, what well, are we targeting specifically? Yeah, it could be the same. You know, agrivoltaics, like I said earlier, is pairing agricultural production with solar energy generation in an integrated way on the same piece of land. Most often we're seeing that happen with sheep grazing across the country. Highly compatible. Sheep aren't going to mess with or wreck the panels and the actual steel of the whole thing. And it's sort of a win-win. They'll graze the ground and keep the grasses low so that they don't rise above the panels and shade them, obviously, because panels need that sun um, as do the forage. So sheep grazing, certainly compatible. We're seeing more and more developers look to that opportunity, including in large scale solar. But for crop production, particularly shade tolerant crops, we need more research. We, you know, we're seeing models across the country in Colorado and Massachusetts, in research facilities in New Jersey, there are folks really leading on thinking through how do we pair these together in the United States, building off of Japan, Germany, work that's done in other countries. And so that's what this bill does. It invests in, you know, ask USDA to look at, study and assess this and invest in more research so that we can continue to grow this innovation into a standard practice. Folks, we've been talking with Samantha Levy, the Conservation and Climate Change Policy Manager at American Farmland Trust. And Samantha, thank you so much for joining thank, us today. Thank you, Mike, and everyone for listening. Folks, stay with us. Bill Hoagland of the Bipartisan Policy Center will join us when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Get on board. The water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. Get on board. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at this market trade kicking off the month of June with positive money flow into the grains and oil seeds with double-digit strength across corn, beans, and all three wheat futures here early on in the session as we are looking at just a good positive start here to the day of trade. The National Weather Service calling for drought development to spread from Iowa east to Pennsylvania in June while persisting in northern Missouri, western Iowa, and eastern Nebraska. Today's forecast models removed a bit of the rain that has been showing up at the second 
second week of June, raising the risk that the transition in the atmosphere toward more El Nino pattern is being delayed somewhat. Now we take a look here at these markets. Beans trading higher to begin the month with soy products higher. Soybean meal had fallen sharply caused by feed demand concerns, but yesterday's rally in hogs breathed some life into meal futures. Yesterday, November beans did hit a new one-year low before bouncing off of it. We see in the corn trade, Brazilian corn remains cheap, and on the Bovespa exchange, July corn trading at the equivalent of 4.44 a bushel. We are hearing that a little bit of uh, soybeans are, are still getting shipped into the U.S. from Brazil in a rare move. Something to keep our eyes on there. Canadian wheat production for 23-24 expected to be in line with last season despite area expansions due to poor soil moisture in the southern prairies. Canadian wheat production estimated at 33.3 million metric tons, down 1% from last season. We continue to watch the economy, the debt ceiling, the bill passed out of the House now moves on to the Senate. So we'll continue to watch that in the backdrop here of our commodity trade. Livestock mixed to lower with triple digit losses in feeder cattle and in hogs behind us June hogs, which are staying close to the cash index. While live cattle trade is mixed here so far on this Thursday. Let's check out the markets. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we've got some news. Well, I should say we have some potential news coming. On Wednesday night, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the debt ceiling deal. The piece of legislation now heads over to the Senate, where passage is expected. And joining us to talk about what all is included in this piece of legislation is Bill Hoagland. Bill serves as the Senior Vice President for the Bipartisan Policy Center. He is a longtime government staffer. He served as the head of the Senate Budget Committee for several years. Bill, thank you so much for joining us on AOA today. It's good to be with you, Mike. So we've got this piece of legislation. We've got this debt ceiling agreement. Bill, are we actually cutting any federal spending, federal spending in this debt ceiling agreement? Yes, we are reducing spending in the area of the federal budget that's referred to as discretionary. This is the amount of money that's usually is appropriated annually. And not to get into the weeds here, but th this is basically about 15% of the budget will be constrained going forward. So while it, it, there is reductions here in spending in that particular area over the next two years, about $200 billion, if they carry out the uh, provisions that uh, are established beyond that two years, there could be savings in the federal budget by nearly $1.5 trillion dollars over 10 years. But I think I would focus on the near term here. There will be restraints on spending in the near term for fiscal year 24. It'll start here in October and for fiscal year 25 next year. So that's uh, there is savings. Now, is um, I'm an old budgeteer uh, that we've left off the table an awful lot of the federal spending. Uh, uh, defense is not to be touched. Uh, all of what we call the entitlement programs, including the farm price farm programs uh, are off the table here in this agreement. So this is a, a, a portion of the budget, but it's not the uh, total spending of the federal government. 
Well, Bill, I think that is a fantastic point, and that highlights, I think, exactly what's happening here. We're cutting 15% of the federal discretionary budget by perhaps $200 billion in a deal Correct. that's raising the overall debt limit $3 trillion. So obviously, we're planning on borrowing more money long term, aren't we? Absolutely. In fact, if, uh, the path that we're on right now, I would uh, argue that over the next, ten, at the end of the 10 year period, which we make these budgets and projections, and that's a long way out there, of course, in years. But uh, we're talking about a, a, a borrowing today of, of $34.34 trillion. We're going to increase that to, as you said, a couple trillion dollars, $36 trillion by January of 2025. But if we carry this on out, even under the best of circumstances, we're still looking at increasing borrowing over the next decade. And I would say by the end of the decade, we're still going to be talking about having to borrow up to $50 trillion unless there are other actions that take place in the budget between now and then, which are surely will be. But your point is well taken, Mike. This is a this is a down payment. It's not, uh, it's a compromise. It is a it is a uh, uh, what comes out of a divided government, so to speak, that uh, we're going to have to. Uh, um, we haven't we haven't solved the uh, borrowing problem here by this particular piece of legislation, though it's a it's a good start and it's bipartisan. It, it's a good start. It's bipartisan. All of that you mentioned, Bill. I, I said it's expected to pass through the Senate. Is that still the expectation in D.C.? Absolutely. Uh, you have the majority leader and the minority leader, Mr. McConnell and Mr. Schumer, all in support of it. It will pass uh, the Senate. The question is, how fast can they pass it? Uh, we're looking at today uh, a balance on, uh, in our, if you like, in the Treasury, our daily statement. We're, we're down to about $40 billion in our uh, on bank account today. It wouldn't take much to eat that up real quickly with Social Security payments and Medicare payments over the next few days. So we have to move quickly. Uh, it will pass. The only question is how fast can they get it done? What's going to happen here? It's over at the Senate t this morning. Uh, they're going to start. They're already started on the process. The question is uh, whether there are members of the Senate who do not like this particular proposal in some areas. Uh, didn't cut spending enough. Um, uh, deals with a, a particular sensitive issue for in the state of West Virginia called the Mountain Valley Pipeline. There are people who do not like the fact that they have uh, strengthened the uh, work requirements. So there will be amendments, and the question is whether the two, two leaders can work out a way to limit the amount of amendments, because if this is amended, um, it will have to go back to the House. And I don't think we got that kind of time on our side. So they got to figure out a way to let the senators have the amendments defeat the amendments and move fast. Otherwise, the Senate procedure is that uh, not uh, process is a, a lengthy one. You have file motions to closure. You have to get over the 60 vote hurdle, the filibuster. There are the there are some possibilities that members could use their procedural rights. They could stretch this out well beyond next Monday, and that would not be good. Uh, we would be uh, we would potentially we're still. We're still threatened with default here unless we can speed up this process in the Senate. Bill, and I think that leads to my next question is, let's say the Senate moves quickly. They get their amendment issues sorted out. They get a bill passed. It's let's say the vote is Monday after it's passed out of the Senate. And this is now law. The Treasury can borrow money again. Is there an apparatus at the Treasury that needs time to get started in order to get the dollars flowing back into that checking account? Well, they've already started. In fact, today there's what we call a three-day bill that they've issued today that they're raising about $25 billion that they can do today. They have scheduled uh, uh, issuance of uh, bonds uh, uh, next week, uh, beginning on uh, uh, Monday and Tuesday. Yes, I think there there are uh, the mechanisms already there for uh, for starting to increase the borrowing that they need here to keep going forward. So yes, uh, the mechanisms there. I'm not worried about that. The question will be what they're going to have to pay, uh, what uh, the federal treasury is going to have to pay for this borrowing, because uh, we have we have now created a risk factor here that uh, will mean that the interest rates uh, maybe have to will have to pay a little bit more for our borrowing, and that's uh, unfortunately that feeds right direct back into the fact that we have to uh, the interest on our public debt will go up. So. Um, it, the mechanisms there, uh, uh, the issue is how much is this going to cost us. And whenever we go through these debt limit debates, it always there is a cost involved. 
and that is this uh, fact that uh, risk uh, is appears to be a little bit higher and therefore interest rates will be a little bit higher. Absolutely. Those investors are are now a little perhaps more cagey about buying those treasuries. Bill, I'd like to yeah. bring the focus back to something you said earlier. This is a compromised debt ceiling agreement, as you mentioned, not huge cuts to spending, but also not huge cuts to spending. So both sides sort of get what they want, given the fact that it is a 15% cut to discretionary spending in the near term. Do you anticipate large government bills like the farm bill this year having a tougher time of getting across the finish line? Uh, yes, <laughs> I do. Uh, let me uh, let me make very clear that I one of the elements that was holding up this particular uh, debate uh, over the last few uh, weeks has been what we call work requirements in the SNAP program, the food stamp program. I, I think your listeners know that the food stamp program or the SNAP program is a major title in the farm bill. In fact, it makes up about 80% of the cost of the farm bill. And the fact that we've had this debate in the debt limit will take that off of the table. We think we'll take the, the, the co-chairs and the chairs of the two agriculture committees said, we're okay, we've settled this. We're not going to debate uh, work requirements in the farm bill uh, because we've taken care of it. So that may ex help expedite it. But the fact that uh, we still have a lot of issues uh, and uh, the fact that uh, uh, we're still looking, as you've, as we just discussed, uh, uh, the debt is still going to grow. There will still be pressure placed, I think, on the farm bill in certain areas to uh, reduce spending, and that in itself will create problems, I think, for uh, for getting it getting it out. But um, the committees uh, are moving ahead. Um, I am anticipating that this um, is pro this is I'm not going out on a limb here. I don't think we're going to get a farm bill done this year. Uh, I have a feeling it's going to be kicked into uh, the second session of the 118th Congress. And uh, given that uh, Chairman Stabenow is uh, retiring, uh, it may go up to the end of her term in the second session. Uh, I just think the, the, the uh, while we, we can claim uh, success here, if you like, with a bipartisan bill last night, it's still going to be a controversial issue going forward. It is. I think that's a great point. These these discussions are not done, Bill, but hopefully we'll see the Senate vote this thing through. We can push this debt ceiling discussion off our radar. And my next question to you will be with this in the in the right rearview mirror. What's the next crisis that's going to prompt Congress to ask? What are you watching there in D.C.? Well, I'm watching specifically our two uh, other crises. First of all, number one, we'll have another crisis come January and the spring of 25, because we, as we just said, we just kicked the can on the debt limit, but we'll still have to raise the debt limit again sometime in uh, in the early 25 in the, in the next, uh, Cong uh, next Congress, as well as whoever is the next president of the United States is going to have to deal with this again early in 25. So that's still coming. But a little bit longer term, and one that's probably as important as uh, the debt limit, is uh, uh, we have two major programs, the Medicare program, hospital insurance program. It runs on a trust fund. That trust fund will exhaust, uh, uh, be depleted, and uh, by 2032, I believe it is, 31, 32. And Social Security trust fund is also will be depleted by 2033. If those are not, if those two programs are not adjusted, there will be a reduction in the spending in those programs. Yeah, folks, keep an eye on this. These budget issues do have ramifications. We've been talking with Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center. Bill, as always, thanks for joining us here on AOA. Thank you. Bye. And folks, stay tuned. We'll be talking markets with Chris Robinson of Robinson Ag Marketing here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too to be a beacon of strength, a champion of courage, an advocate for hope. You are not alone. 
because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, we, we we are are the the Foundation foundation Fighting fighting blindness. Blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take Dig a Little, Learn a Lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. It's the most important race of the year. The one where winning is everything. Where the decisions you make now can and will define your entire season. The yields you're dreaming of are either won here or lost here. This is Corn Sprint 2023. You win it with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Specially formulated to make nutrients more available during the most critical uptake periods and strengthen root systems for better absorption. It's the kind of edge that gets your crops all the way to the finish line with greater yield potential, greater return on your fertilizer investment, and just plain old greatness. So win the corn sprint. Include Biopath in your early season fertilizer application. Contact your local retailer or visit cornsprint.com. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Turning our focus over to the commodity markets, we had seen the grains on a bit of a downtrend all week. But Thursday, the bulls are on parade. Joining us now is Chris Robinson of Robinson Ag Marketing. And Chris, are we just watching a technical recovery today or is something fundamental changed? No, the weather outlook changed uh, literally in 48 hours. Um, the same people that couldn't sell enough on Tuesday night session couldn't buy enough uh, last night. And uh, also, too, it's the beginning of the month. So you've got money that needs to be put to work. And, um, yeah, so it's kind of interesting. We'll see. Um, a lot of people are trying to compare this to 2012. Um, I just hope it's not 2013. 2012, we bottomed out about the middle of June. And lo and behold, you know, it's the first week of June here. So those seasonal-type traders, anybody like there that's trying to get in front of a potential weather issue, this is the week for it to happen. And um, so we're, we're at a critical point. You know, we, we've had a lot of rallies in the past year that have not had legs. They have not uh, you know, lasted more than a week or so. So this is a pretty big time of the year for bulls and bears, end users, producers. Everybody's pulling for a different price out there, but this is a key, key time today. It's a key time today, Chris. And what are you working on or how are you best at managing that risk today? The fact that we are kind of on a razor's edge. We've seen that December corn trade down to $5 this week and now we're at $5.35. Is this, is this a price point you want to protect? Well, see, you know, the big level I'd look at is 39 and a half, 40. What, what is that? That's the 50-day moving average. If we can settle above that, that opens up the possibility that we can maybe have one more run higher. Um, but we've already had a pretty significant down move. I mean, we started the year at 606. We, we kind of found a bottom at 490. Um, so, you know, I would say to guys, you know, we know what the worst case scenario is at this point, right? Anybody with, uh, you know, a chart can see it's 490. So now it's probably not the time to be spending a lot on very expensive puts. However, um, I would, I would advise people, you know, to at least protect 490, you know, that's your worst case scenario. But, but um, you know, if we did get a rally back up above 575, uh, 580 area, then that's an area where you probably want to take a look at, you know, establishing new hedges or catching up on some sales, especially if you did nothing back at the beginning of the year when we were, we were above six bucks for about two months. So. Yeah, that's so true. Chris, I, I want to uh, gaze into your crystal ball here. Let's say this forecast, this dry forecast, the one that's got the markets pulled up now, let's say it verifies here over the next six weeks and we see this fear of a weather market turn into a, an actual weather market. We see this dryness actually right. start to clip production. What's the upside on a rally this year? I mean, we're working with fundamentally different uh, balance sheet here in 2023 than we were in 22, aren't we? Right, right. And that's why I would say I would look at the, you know, the level, I think $6 is going to be a, a big fighting point. Anything around $6, that would be a great recovery. Um, that, I think, would be a mulligan, a gift for any producer. And then, um, so if we did get up there, you know, that's not the time to play the old wait-and-see game. And, um, you know, until we get there, you know, don't be afraid to reward rallies. You can, you can make some sales and then get your risk on paper. Um, uh, but I think the risk is, and we've seen it time and time again, we have a nice rally. We've just rallied, um, you know, from from 490 to almost 540, right? I'm going to call that 50 cents. What I don't want to see is that 50 cents disappear quickly. So I think you, you use a put option as a trailing stop. Um, all that means is you're put, putting the floor in, you're not capping the top, and, and just kind of sit back and see what happens uh, in the next, um, you know, 10 to 12 days. If this is 2012, you won't have to worry about it. It'll take off, you know, and that's, that's again, is that the type of market we're looking at? I do not know. But if you look at 2013, which was just the following year, you know, we had this one rally into the July 4th weekend, and then we, then we rolled back over. So it's a critical time. Uh, it's a good time if you haven't done anything as far as risk management to take a look at at least protecting your downside risk. What nobody wants, nobody wants is to be looking at sub 490 corn when we're sitting here at 540 and you could have done something. So take what the market gives you, keep the upside open. Chris, soybeans, new crop soybeans, 1175 today. We've done a tremendous amount of chart damage to that uh, that commodity here this past week. Is this a point that you want to step in and make a sale on new crop beans or same story? Do you want to see if we can uh, add any more pennies to this thing? 
I'd see, yeah, I'd wait and see if we could add any more pennies. I mean, 24 hours ago, we were at 1130. I had people calling me up saying, you know, how can I protect $11? With, with the beans, you know, it's been a steady kind of cascade lower every rally we've had. And we've had some good rallies. Back in March, you know, we, we went from 12.50 to almost 13.50. So we had a nice dollar rally. That's my concern here. If we do get a rally that is extends, especially if we get north of $12, I think for most producers, if you get north of $12, that's something that you want to take a look at, at least rewarding. But again, you can do that with a substitute sale, with uh, uh, something on paper. You don't have to cap the upside. I would caution people. I don't think right now when we don't know what the weather's going to do, this isn't the time to be paying for your puts by selling calls because, boy, if we get a weather issue, um, you know, back in 2012, the beans rallied, you know, at over three bucks, you know, so uh, you don't want to be playing that game. So it's going to be a tough month to sit through. But, again, I think you play it defensively, but do not cap your upside because if we do have a, a, a significant weather issue, you don't want to be capping the top um, and, and you know, putting, putting the reins on for, for that type of a rally. Absolutely. If this dryness is going to come, you want to be able to let that crop run as far as it can, or at least markets run as far as they can. Chris, wheat side, uh, Chicago wheat, 15 cent move up today. Uh, anything changing on the wheat front? Not really. I mean, there's more issues uh, on the, in the headlines with, you know, grain not coming out the way it should be from the, uh, the Black Sea. But again, if you look at the um, the Chicago soft red, I mean, my goodness, we made a contract vote yesterday and took off. So again, I keep a floor under the wheat. Uh, uh, if you if you need to set some hedges, get them done here. Again, we can get pulled up if we do have a, a drought here in the next two to three weeks. That's dry. That's right. Market's going to notice the dryness, folks. That's Chris Robinson of Robinson Ag Marketing. Tune in tomorrow. We'll have more AOA right here. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder. Being themselves is second nature. Summer Camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. A good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering, and your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe... Someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration.